This is the Dallas Morning News. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Sports Day Insider presented by the Dallas Morning News. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by my old pals, Evan Grant and David Moore. Evan is in Surprise, Arizona. David is in his lovely abode. Uh, how are we doing, fellas? Doing well. Just going through my catalog of uh, Coen Brothers films. There we go. Let's. We're gonna have a one of these days. We're gonna have a, an entire podcast on Coen Brothers films. I think we should. I think we'd be great. It'd be greatness, wouldn't it? You know, I always. I think it would. Do you I think we should put, maybe give? Do you think we should maybe give the listeners a little context to how the Coen Brothers line came up? Um, nah. The Coen Brothers are good anytime for any reason. Right, but you well, just referenced in our pre-show text. You referenced uh, some thirty-four-year-old Coen Brothers movie. Some thirty-four-year-old Miller's go Crossing. Ahead, a, go ahead and a, rave about Miller's Crossing. Classic. I got to tell you, you know, obviously, it is outstanding. The, God, it's the one of the best gangster is, films is, ever done. Yes, The Godfather is the, the ultimate gangster slash mafia movie. There's no question about that. And Goodfellas is in I, there. Yeah, and Goodfellas is is up there too. But I put uh, Miller's Crossing right up there, close. I think I like Miller's Crossing better than Goodfellas. Um, it's just they're co- completely different kind of thing. Certainly, as a period piece, uh, I I just love the Coen Brothers' language. Every movie you watch of theirs, they really immerse themselves in the language of either the time or the place, and sometimes both. Uh, and it's just they're just terrific, you know. I would say, although it is. I, I, I would Go say ahead. that Good, Goodfellas and, and Godfather are one and one A, um, and I would probably put uh, I'd probably put Casino in the top five as well, um, and those are all the, the and everything after that is an afterthought. Well, you got to put Godfather one and two, right? Uh, and then, and then after that, or two and all, one, however you want to do it, yeah. However you want to do that, absolutely. Uh, which is kind of oh, we all agree, no three. Yeah. No. Oh my gosh, it was awful, terrible, beyond bad, beyond bad. All right, that's it for uh, for our movie critics today, uh, Cisco and Ebert and and whoever uh, the third guy is going to be. Uh, and and then we'll, uh, I think that's that's enough of that, right? That really Maybe. rolled deep right there. It did. We really went deep. Well, we're going to go back to that one of these days. Maybe we'll do that for our, one of our little evergreen podcasts. All right. Uh, so uh, we just had an all-star game. We're going to get to that later, an NBA all-star game, if you want to call it that uh, game. Uh, but we're going to start off here talking about the Rangers and spring training. Uh, Evan, so what's it like out there? The weather here is, is spectacular. You know, you go to spring training to get away from the weather wherever you are. And I think the weather here is just as good as it is there. How, how is it? it it's gorgeous. Um, it has been a spectacular first eight days out here. Uh, no rain, 72 degrees, middle of the day, clear as a bell. 
I don't know what clear. Oh, I guess it's clear as a bell is more for sound than it is for sight, but uh, that's what it it's is. clear. Um, everybody has been actually kind of surprised given the last two years and and how rough spring training started. So uh, weather wise, it's it's been great. Uh, the one thing that I've kind of noticed is as the defending world champions, there hasn't been a mad rush of fans. Uh, to the backfields in Arizona. I would not say that the the crowds are any larger for this first week of workouts than any time in recent years. I've seen the same regulars who come out here from DFW uh, early in camp um, all the time, but I've not seen some crush of like autograph seekers. There's some, but not a, a huge crush. And I haven't seen some a, a large bandwagon group of fans who just have decided that they love the Rangers. Yeah, uh, I was uh, reading uh, something that Jeff Wilson wrote the other day, talked about, he said, really what you're seeing is a lot of uh, uh, the professional autograph seekers running all over the place, uh, tracking down players, uh, running, you know, so far they haven't run over anybody, uh, any children or anything, and that's a good thing. But that's, uh, that's that is kind of the impression I get. That's but that's that's been a that's been a staple of spring trainings here. Whenever the Rangers have had some kind of star player, there's been a group of of autograph seekers who shows up and they you know they get in the way. Um, there have been I will say this, Kevin. There have been a number of fans out here sporting lone stars. The Dallas Morning News is a commemorative book on the World Series, still available in the Dallas Morning News store uh, with the foreword written by Kevin Sherrington. Um, and so that, that's that been nice to see all that. But uh, it's just not – let's just say this, that, that Rangers fever has not captured the, the desert southwest. Yeah. Thanks for that product placement there, Evan. That was good. Um yeah, uh, I think we, you and I were just talking about that a minute ago, that, uh, that the Cubs and the Giants are the big presence out there in Arizona because they have such a long-time presence out there. The Rangers are still relatively newcomers. And the Dodgers. Area. The Dodgers. I should, I should yeah, the Dodgers. the Dodgers. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about this because uh, I, I wrote a column the other day asking how long the honeymoon would last, and you were kind enough to uh, retweet that uh, column, and I got Got a lot of response from people. One guy uh, called me an insufferable than an expletive uh, for asking that question. And I don't think he actually read the column, which that's not a, a shock uh, that someone would not read something before responding to it. Uh, but the question was based on the fact that if this team doesn't get off to the kind of start it did last year, which was a phenomenal start, right? They sweep the Phillies to start the season, and then they're in first place all the way through middle of August after that. Um, and, you know, fans were still a little slow to come around on them uh, at that point. And then they, but they needed every bit of that hot start to, to last until the end of the season because of the collapse there in August and September. Um, but the, the, what that column was really uh, angling towards was that, you know, it's, imp it's incumbent upon Chris Young, I think, to do something about, rotation at this point at, at this point they're taking the kind of the same attitude about the rotation that they did about the bullpen last year right they kept saying that well once uh, jonathan hernandez and jose leclerc come back the bullpen will be just fine uh and and that's what they were banging and of course that was a a failed uh 
bit. You know, that, that didn't work out that way. They were, the, the bullpen was a disaster all season until the very end. Um, this year, it seems like they're kind of hoping for the same thing. And I think there's a little bit of an assumption that, well, when Max Scherzer gets back and, and Tyler Malley gets back and, and when Jacob DeGrom gets back, well, then there you go. There's a there's three-fifths of the rotation right there. Well, that's also assuming that those guys are all going to be pitching great, right? And who says that's going to happen after it's sitting out this long, right? Oh, all 100%. I mean, we can – this team didn't do anything really significant to address starting pitching for the first half of the season. And I think I've had some visiting writers come through here um, and talk about, you know, the Rangers sure look like a world champion operating on a budget. And there's there's nothing wrong with being on some degree of a budget. But listen, the Rangers didn't add anything really significant, at least for the first half of the season. Tyler Malley could be a, a, a big addition in the second half. Um, but it, it I, I think that that – that narrative does exist that, hey, what, what exactly did the Rangers do this offseason? Uh, it was a very close race in the AOS last year. Houston went out and added Josh Hader. The Mariners have, as usual, shuffled the deck, um, but they've improved. Uh, the Angels are – well, the Angels are, are a disaster, and the, the, the A's have nowhere to even play baseball. But I think that you could have made a case that – that ownership here could have could have spent more money and gone out and, and gotten a pitcher. Now, could they have gotten Jordan Montgomery? Would that have been prudent? No, but I think if the Rangers I, – I don't want to say no. Maybe you could maybe say no, it wouldn't be prudent. But I think you can also say that if the Rangers had acted earlier in the offseason, there were guys available on one- and two-year deals at 12 or $13 million, which might have made much more sense. Yeah, there's still the possibility that they could make a trade too. You know, it's the one I proposed. You know, it was Dylan Cease of the White Sox, who's uh, under control for uh, two more years. This one and, and next year uh, at eight million dollars this year. Um, and uh, the, the speculation was that well, that he and Corbin Burns of the Brewers were the two big uh, trade targets in the off season. Uh, Burns went to the Orioles for two top 100 uh, prospects. Uh, from the Orioles plus an, uh, another pitch, another player. Uh, the speculation was that it would take three top 100 uh, or three uh, top prospects from a team to get um, cease. And, uh, and in that column, I propose that, you know, you, some combination of, of Leone Tavares, Ezekiel Duran and Justin uh, uh, Foscue, plus probably a Jack Leiter. So, the of course the the reaction from uh, the fans it's it's always just blows me away even from people who, who seem to have a little bit of knowledge about all this kind of stuff is that oh my gosh you can't trade those guys those are all good players they're all good prospects and it's like but you do realize that they that their number one pitcher right now is Nathan Evaldi and then you step down to John Gray and then you step down to to Dane Dunning and then you end up at number five with Cody Bradford. Uh, you know, with Andrew Heaney in there before that, that's not a championship rotation. Uh, and obviously, you know, th- there will be reinforcements at some point. I do have faith that Chris Young would make a deal at the deadline just like he did last year. But boy, I just, I feel like you can't, you, you can't two years in a row play with your pitching like this and just think that, 
oh, we're going to work this out. It'll, it'll, it'll all be all right. We'll just, we'll just kind of monitor it and see how it goes. Well, you know, a year ago, they, they went out and they spent an enormous amount of money and capital on starting pitching. And then uh, when they needed to in season, they, they did address the, the bullpen. Um, I think the difference here, and, and you can make the point that in 2022, they spent an enormous amount of money and addressed their, their primary need, which was the starting pitching. Um, and, and you can, you can make a better case when you spent 250 million or whatever it was that you, that you spent that off season that, Hey, you, you spent all your money, um, on one area. Did it leave the bullpen somewhat exposed? Sure. It did this year, you know, there just hasn't been any big expenditure of money. Now, the flip side from ownership's perspective is we put out Seven hundred million dollars um, in twenty after twenty twenty one. Put out two hundred and fifty million dollars after twenty twenty two. That's the, the those were the big leaps. Now the pitching development has to come inside, and and we can argue all day about whether or not this pitching staff has enough pitching. But I think the underlying issue here remains: the Rangers have got to develop some pitching at some point in time. They just have not done a good job of developing young starting pitching. Uh, if you felt confident about Jack Leiter or Zach Kent or Owen White uh, or Cole Wynn coming into this camp, the situation wouldn't be as dire. But I don't think that anybody going into this camp feels like any of those guys is a real legitimate contender to break the rotation. In a perfect world, one of them would, and then you push Cody Bradford into a multi-inning role in the bullpen, and now you've, you've, you've addressed two needs, right? I just don't know that there's that level of confidence that any of these guys is going to be there come April 1. Let me ask you this, David, uh, from your experience covering the NBA and, and the NFL. Don't you think it's incumbent upon an organization that once you win it all and you are the world champions, that you got to do your best to run it back the next year? Uh, we saw what happened when the Mavericks won the title in 2011, and the next year they let Tyson Chandler go. And Donnie Nelson told me that, well, we, we just felt like we caught lightning in a bottle that year, and we just had to, you know, uh, you know, basically try to – they didn't start completely all over. But once you didn't bring back Tyson Chandler, you just ripped up that team. You know, you could bring back whoever you wanted to. That, But he was kind of the heart of the defense in that. Don't you think that, that – that you owe it to your friend, to your fan base, and and really just kind of doing res- respect to the sport. If you're the if you're the defending world champions, you got to act like it the next year, don't you? I I would say I, I agree overall. I think to some people saying that a franchise owes it to its fan base or the sport is a romantic concept. But I would argue, I would turn and argue it from a business perspective for the team, which is if you really want to reinforce brand loyalty, if you want to build your brand, there's an obligation for you to go back out and defend that championship and do all you can. Um, it, I don't think teams have always done that in the past. I think in the past, there have been some teams that go, oh, you know, this is too hard. I don't know. We have all the pieces. And, and, and again, I'm constantly fascinated by coaches who always talk about it's a team. It's a team. And the sum of the parts is greater than any one individual. 
And then what was the argument basically of dismantling that Mavericks team that won the title? Well, lightning in a bottle, that team, that team didn't have enough individual talent. That wasn't going, they weren't going to do it again. So um, I, I do think there is, however way you want to spin it, whether you spin it from a romantic uh, fan perspective, uh, you know, what you owe the sport, or if you want to be more selfish and just talk about the organization and brand reinforcement that is really going to pay off for you as a franchise more in the long haul. Yes, I, I do think there's an obligation to go out and, and defend the title whatever way you can within certain fiscal parameters. I mean, I, I'm not talking about getting stupid, um, but but also winning a title brings you a financial windfall and, and some opportunities that wouldn't exist otherwise. So don't try to just maximize on that versus the fact that you won a title. You know, I do right. want to clarify one thing there on, on, on that. And as far as baseball goes, you know, and I asked about this the other day, like even world championship merchandise, right? That's all under the licensing agreement. So no matter what the Rangers sold, they're getting one thirtieth of, of, of the MLB licensing pie. So there's no great windfall for this team over others. The other part of that is that in postseason um, gates, you know, unless your series goes long, unless it goes to game six or seven, the, uh, the, the lion's share of the ticket sale revenue goes to um, the players for the players' share. So that, that windfall is not as significant. However, you know, if your team was making it on, on average 15% in terms of valuation improvement, uh, if you were seeing that kind of growth year over year, the thought would be that a World Series is worth another 5%, 10%. What I've argued is I understand the, the perspective of you're, you're trying to run a business here and you're trying to, you, it, it's still a business and you can't get stupid. My thought is if you invest another $30 million or wherever you're at this point in time and you create an actual dynasty where the, where the Rangers don't just become perceived as, oh, they, got, they had the best team in October, as hard as that may be, if you take that shot and that gamble, you potentially, that's where the windfall comes from. You increase the value of this team exponentially. You know, you're talking about making a 25 or 30% increase in one year, and that's hundreds of millions of dollars. So I, I, I do think that, look, you serve, you're trying to serve two purposes here. You do spend a lot of money to go out and win a World Series, and there's some, there's some personal checks that you have to write along the way. Uh, and, and you are trying to run a business without getting stupid. At the same point in time, yes, I do think that, you know, to further, like David said, to further enhance your brand and to, to enhance brand loyalty and to create, look, what the Cowboys created in the in the 70s and again in the 90s, you go out and you do everything you can to, to run it back to back. It hasn't happened in Major League Baseball since 2000. And, and if this team did that, I think it would be, it would be a significant increase in, in value and revenue. Well, and those are the direct ties. That's not the ancillary. That's not the uh, commercial opportunities that present themselves to the players and by extension, the organization to give them a higher profile. And very few sports franchises have been able to reach the position where they're insulated from the competitive realities and relevance. The Cowboys are one of them. 
they we've talked about that a little bit in the past. They're kind of insulated from the fact that they don't have to have the postseason success others have, and they're still part of the conversation. But uh, look, it drops off fast. What what was but before Kansas City? What was the last dynasty? New England. Where are they now, based on what they did for such a a a prolonged period of time in today's game? Uh, it, it's it it's it can it's very fleeting, and so when you when you're at that nexus where you have a chance to do something, you need to capitalize on it in all forms. Yeah, no question. Plus, you don't want to become the the, the Florida Marlins. That's the that's the big thing to me. Yeah, when when in a when in a World Series and nobody won two World Series and nobody cares. Well, uh, I mean, it, 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 I, I, the one difference there is right. The Marlins both years they won the World Series and tore down their team in the in, in the ensuing offseason. This team certainly hasn't done that. You know, for me, the more the bigger comp would be: Are they in danger of becoming the Washington Nationals? Um, the Nationals yeah. won in two thousand nineteen, uh, and they just have been kind of insignificant ever since. A lot of one-hit wonders out there, you know. Yeah. Let's uh, before we get out of the Rangers segment, real quick. Uh, Evan uh, got the first spring training game coming up on Friday. I know that these uh, lineups don't mean anything in the spring, and but you got a, uh, a third baseman out and a shortstop out. Uh, you expect to see uh, you expect to see White Langford in the lineup, starting lineup anywhere? Evan Carter. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I think you're going to see a lot of Langford and, and a lot of Carter um, all spring. Uh, I do. I do also think that this is going to create even more opportunity for Ezekiel Duran to to get playing time. He'll play a bunch of short, and, and I bet he'll play some third base. And listen, the more you see of Ezekiel Duran, and he gets exposed this spring, uh, potentially the higher his trade value goes, and potentially by the end of spring, people are viewing him as an everyday player with no place to play on this roster. And that po- that makes him uh, a possible fit somewhere else. The flip side of that too is I think teams need to see Dylan Cease right now. He did not have a good year last year. He he kind of uh, he he moved back. He he moved a little bit backwards. So I think teams want to see what where Dylan Cease is before they they make any moves on him. And and maybe I think you could even put Shane Bieber in that same uh, in that same boat. <laughs> Yeah, uh, one thing that people don't ever think about uh, who are such fans of minor league prospects is that you can wait too long to trade a guy, you know, uh, and they and they go past. And then everybody says, yeah, this is who he is at 25, at 26, at 27, and they're no longer they have the same value. Jerks and Profar was a perfect example of that. Jerks and right. Profar was the, was the he, he's the, he's the case study. Is absolutely uh, all right. That's going to do it for the Rangers segment of our podcast. We're going to move over and talk about the Cowboys now. Uh, David, just give us a little update first of all about uh, any dates coming up. Uh, as we're taping this on Tuesday, this is the first day that a franchise can give a, a player the franchise tag, and they can do that for I guess two weeks. So, explain all that to us and what you think that the Cowboys are going to do. Yeah, this is the uh, the two week window opens for a franchise tag transition tag for a player. Um, that is the you know, the Cowboys have used this six consecutive years. It's become a big part of their off season toolbox. Um, I've been told they are highly unlikely to use it this year. Um, you know, they used it last year on Tony Pollard. Uh, we came in at 10.1 million. 
They needed to do that because they had de- they had determined they were going to part ways with Ezekiel Elliott. Um, if you know, once they did that, and then letting Pollard get to the open market where he could have wound up somewhere else, uh, they really would have been in a bind. But the thing is, when you franchise a player in back to back years which is what the Cowboys have done recently in 2018-19. They did Demarcus Lawrence, and 2020 and 21, they did Dak Prescott. When you do a player in back-to-back seasons, it's not the franchise tag number just applied again. It's a 20% increase over what it was the first time you applied it. So in order to keep Tony Pollard for one more year on the franchise tag, that would be north of $12 million. And this team, because of where it is with Dak Prescott's contract, um, because they need to get their financial house in order, devoting that much to that position uh, doesn't make a lot of sense for them at this time. And the, the franchise tags have gotten to the point really across the board where um, you know, they're looking at that with every player. Um, they'd like to keep Stefan Gilmore, for instance, but um, I don't know that the, uh, you know, or Dorrance Armstrong, defensive end, both of those players, but hitting either one of them with the franchise tag would be uh, really exorbitant at this time. Uh, the, the way they would come back would be on multi-year deals that, lower that, that would lower that cap hit in this upcoming season. So, so David, let me ask you this then. Do you expect Tony Pollard to be back with the Cowboys? I believe it's unlikely unless he wants to sign a two to three, say a three-year deal with an option for the third year uh, that, that reduces his cap hit to the, say, $6 million range. I think it's, I think it's much more likely that they will address, uh, address running back with a – a reasonable, uh, somewhat bargain signing in free agency and a draft pick in the second day of the draft, so second or third round uh, that addresses the position. So, so David, if if uh, Tony Pollard isn't coming back, uh, then and, and like you said, unless you could sign him to another deal, I, I don't know why the Cowboys would bring him back at this point. Obviously, he had a thousand yards rushing this year. Um, I, I didn't think that he looked great. Uh, I didn't at any point really. Um, and I didn't, I didn't, and to be fair to him, it wasn't like there were a lot of holes opened up for him either. Uh, but he didn't have the burst or explosiveness that he's displayed throughout his career. Now he was coming off a significant injury, but running backs we have seen historically, uh, once they start to, uh, lose that burst, rarely do they get it back. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, you know, and, and, you know, Zeke Elliott lost it pretty fast. Yeah. Um, so, of course, he had a, a heavier workload than Tony ever had. Um, so we, we've seen several names come up in the free agency. Uh, and, and, and these kind of things are always just kind of humorous to me. Uh, we, we've seen what's happened with running backs, right? That the position is degraded. You know, it is it is no longer what it used to be. Uh, I mean, the, the Cowboys learned that lesson when they gave – Zeke the second contract, right? I mean, they, yeah. they weren't uh, two years into that contract where they were thinking, oh, my gosh, we have made a huge mistake here. Uh, I think he, Jerry Jones at one point even said, 
we shouldn't have drafted Zeke in the first round, you know, with the fourth pick of the draft that year. So to, to me, to think that you would bring that, we were seeing, uh, we've seen, uh, let's see, uh, of course, Derrick Henry, that's a favorite of fans here. That he's, he's a free agent. The Titans. Saquon have, uh, Barkley. Saquon Barkley with the Giants. Yeah. And Josh Jacobs as well. That was another one that just came up. So those three names, so guys, and obviously, uh, you know, I am a Derrick Henry fan. I was a fan of him. I, I wanted them to draft him in the second round back when they drafted Zeke Elliott in the first and draft Jalen Ramsey in the first instead of Zeke. But uh, I mean, I still think he'd be an upgrade just because he's a big guy. But he's also making a lot of money uh, leaving the Titans. He would want a lot of money to, to sign with somebody. So with Saquon Barkley, uh, those, those two contracts especially, Josh Jacobson was, the, what, the NFL's leading rusher two years ago. You know, these are guys who would want significant contracts. And to me, it is insane. Why anybody would sign a free agent running back other than a guy who's going to make a couple million dollars you know, to be a backup, something like that, I, I have no idea. And that's one of the things that you said before is that you draft one on the second day, get, one, get somebody in the third, fourth round, like you did with Tony Pollard, and then maybe bring in a veteran running back to go go along with him. Uh, that just that just makes, just makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? Well, the, the teams that have had these players aren't giving them the contracts they want. Now they use them for another year. They've taken on, absorbed all of those hits. Now they're older with more hits, and they're on the free agent market. So they're less likely to get the contracts that the teams they were on didn't want to give them in the past year. And, uh, you know, people will point to Christian McCaffrey. And to me, he's interesting because uh, he he's at the top of the scale now. Now, he missed a lot of games with injury. And the question was, he, he's been the exception, right? Uh, a back who has been injured, missed some significant time, and is still able to play at a very high level after he worked through those injuries. I would still say that is the aberration. Uh-huh. And how many of those guys are out there? And the other thing is, if you're the Cowboys and you're paying what you are at the quarterback position for Dak Prescott, you're paying what you're going to have to pay at the wide receiver position to re-sign C.D. Lamb, how much money are you going to devote to a running back, another skill position, or are you going to, um, you know, piece it together, seeing that there's some very good uh, rushing attacks in the league, especially, look, we we know how Mike McCarthy leans. He He's a pass-first uh, head coach and play caller. Now, you still have to have a level of efficiency in the run game that the Cowboys did not have this past season, which they need to obtain. Um, but it's not going to carry the offense. It needs to supplement the offense. And you can't continually pay – players at all skill positions at the top of the scale at that position and make it work from a cap standpoint. You're just going to leave yourself thin in other areas. So again, that's a long winded way of saying, and look, what, let's talk about another reason why is Saquon Barkley on the market because of what they paid Daniel Jones, right? Uh, yeah. even though you could argue Saquon Barkley, uh, has, done more for their offensive identity and success when they've had it than Daniel Jones. So that, but they made the choice there and quarterback contracts have reached the point where you have to fit in everything else around them. Uh, even if you, even if it's a quarterback who 
um, is not a franchise quarterback, and I don't know how many franchise quarterbacks are in the NFL right now. I don't know that that list extends much beyond one. Um, so um, I, it just doesn't make sense as constructed. Here's the other thing. If you went out and you said, okay, uh, well, well, Derek Henry or Saquon Barkley is going to make the difference for us this year, so let's pay him. Um, they may come for a little less, but with a, a incentive-laden contract that would get them up to the level that they would want. So you could have a little latitude there. But you're paying that money. That's money you're not paying to retain a couple of free agent starters at other positions. That's money that, well, you know you're going to have to set aside this amount next year for C.D. Lamb or and the year after that for Micah Parsons. Uh, it, it does cut into uh, your overall team depth and, and what you can pay other positions, and you have to keep that into account. So I think because of all of that, um, I don't think there's any running back out there that would persuade them to say, well, no, let's go ahead and pay them more than what we were paying Tony Pollard. No, Lord, no. Are there, to me, that is just foolishness to even think about it. You can get a running back in the draft. There's no question about that in my mind that you can find that. I know it's, yeah. not, a, it's not a top uh, uh, running back field this year, but how many times have you heard that and again, guys get taken? Who thought that Tony Pollard would have come in and had the kind of you know, career that he's had so far? He's a fourth-round pick. What, he didn't even play a lot of running back at Memphis. So uh, I think Kansas I City's running Cowboys. back was what, a seventh-round pick? Yes, absolutely. And so that that's that's the issue to me with that. So let's break off from that, David. And, and I know that the, the, the draft is still, uh, you know, a couple months away. But, you know, we all love to talk about the draft and what's going to happen there. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of speculation. Certainly Micah Parsons uh, went on uh, with Stephen A. Smith the other day and, and talked about how he wanted Jerry Jones to go out and find him a big, nasty pass rush and defensive tackle. Uh, of course, I, I think I recall that he made the same campaign for Mozzie Smith last year, and that didn't exactly work out so yes. great. Uh, not yet, no. No, not yet anyway. Uh, I got to tell you, and I don't say this just because, you know, uh, I saw him play a lot. I know there's been a lot of talk uh, about the Cowboys, or, or anybody actually, uh, Byron Murphy, the uh, the uh, University of Texas defensive tackle uh, considered a first-round talent, a little undersized, but a, a good motor and, and some good pass rush skills. And I've seen him uh, projected uh, for the Cowboys in some mock drafts. But I got to tell you, I, I just love Tavondre Sweat. I love the idea of a 6'4", 364-pound guy who can move like he moves. He's had a really good week at the Senior Bowl. I watched a little, just a little video clip of him, you know, basically moving two guys back about five yards. Uh, and it's like if if the idea is to get a little bigger on defense, uh, and yet you can do that with a guy who does have some pass rush ability and, and who can move like that, uh, that seems like, to me, the perfect pick at 24. Yeah, and um, don't want to minimize the skill set at that position because, you know, the more skill you have at any position, the better, you know, you can excel there. But a nose tackle, a space eater, they're just, they're just basic minimum size requirements to anchor in there um, that are about physical attributes. And then you start talking about, you know, skill set. 
And, uh, and look, yeah, those tapes this week of of sweat that that are coming out have been very impressive. I don't see him getting out of the, the, the front end. And, and this is, you know, just like you have the middle of the infield in, in, you know, to improve a, a defense in baseball, uh, that the Cowboys have to improve up the middle against the run. And that's at defensive tackle, and that's getting some bigger linebackers in here. And there's no doubt in my mind uh, that is a direction that Mike Zimmer will want to go now that he's the new defensive coordinator. And um, you, you can still make that fit with the speed uh, and the ability you have at the other positions on this defense. Um, so to me, it's not this isn't a, well, let's break the mold and look for a different type of player. No, a a a big nose tackle that commands two interior players is going to help any defense, no matter how it's set up and what the what the prototype uh, skill set is. No question about that. So, David, you uh, I believe wrote this week about uh, Tyron Smith, or, or either you or Calvin uh, talked about the fact that Tyron uh, apparently would like to come back to the Cowboys for at least one more year. Um, what do you 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 have a good feel about uh, if if Tyron would uh, come back to the? I think he would like to come back to the Cowboys. There's been some speculation that maybe the Chiefs would be interested in him. What do you think is going to happen there? Well, I believe he he will definitely play again. Uh, you saw his level of performance last year. Um, that even if it if he did not play for Dallas, other teams would sign him. Uh, the importance of that position. Uh, how quickly it thins out. Uh, he is still, you know, before he was the best left tackle or in the conversation for the best two to three. I don't think he's at that level anymore, but when he's on the field, he's still in the discussion for the best, you know, five to eight, I think at the worst, you know, at, at the position. And that's a pretty impressive thing to be able to say uh, for someone who has been in the league this long and has had this many health issues to still be that dominant. That being said, I find it hard to believe, based on his injury history over the last eight years, that he will be able to stay on the field as long as he did last year and play at the level that he did last year for so long. I I, I believe that they got his best last season in the league. And, uh, you know, in the even before last year, we've talked about, we seem to talk about this every year for the previous, you know, three to four years. They were kind of hostages to his talent because when he did play, he was still one of the better left tackles in the league, but he missed so many games, it left their offensive line in a state of flux. And um, I would argue if they had done a better job of developing talent, young talent at tackle behind him, you could you could do it another year with him. I, I think it's and that is one of the things they're discussing really right now at at uh, at the star. Uh, you know, this is another one of their major conversations at the moment. Do we continue to go forward with Tyron Smith, or is it time to? Because again, you want to do it at the right time or a little too soon, not too late. 
And, um, you know, that's the conversation with him. But I, I just don't know that they have developed enough talent where they feel good enough behind him to do it, especially when you look at how Terrence Steele struggled last year coming back off the injury. Um, so we'll, we'll see. But I, it appears to me they're in a position where they should, uh, I, I think, more so than ever before, the conversation is being had about whether or not this is time to move on. Yeah, these are always tough calls, you know, Very guys tough. have been, been, been great players and, and it's not a question of you, you know, doing what's right for them. It's a question of how much do they have left? You know, it's like when they let DeMarcus Ware go to the Broncos and which was the right thing to do for DeMarcus and probably the right thing for the Cowboys at that point. And yet he did go on and have a couple more good years yes, he uh, did, for the Broncos. Yeah. And of course, it helped that he was playing across from another pretty good defensive end. And uh, if you make the decision to move over from Tyron Smith and he goes to Kansas City or another team and is able to duplicate the season he had this year, you made the wrong call, you know, unless yeah. unless you draft an offensive tackle in the first or second round that is a day one starter for you and, and uh, uh, gives you something to build on. Yeah, and there's obviously I think at some point the Cowboys are going to have to make a call on whether Tyler Smith is going to be a guard or he's going to be a left tackle. He, he had a really good season last year at guard. Uh, he's shown he can do both, yeah. He, yes, he has. And I don't have any problem with moving guys back and forth. If, if Larry Allen could do it, uh, and I realize Larry Allen's a Hall of Famer, but it didn't hurt his candidacy for the Hall of Fame switching back and forth from guard and tackle. Uh, you know, you, you'd like to get a guy locked in at a position, obviously. Uh, but it does also help your versatility in your offensive line. Somebody gets hurt and you, you have to move somebody. If they've played that position, good for them. Well, and that's it. It's it like, look, we can we know Tyler Smith is the future. Let's just move him back out to left tackle, leave him there. And you know what? We can find a guard that we're that is still going to allow us to play at a pretty high level. Um, so let's just do this, go forward and start building a younger line that we don't keep to half addressing or holding our breath year in, year out. And and I really think this past year was holding their breath. And it worked out for them. But in recent years with Tyron Smith, it has not. Yeah. It's just not uh, uh, Tyron Smith either at left tackle. You got the, the question of Tyler Biotic at center. Uh, do you expect that the Cowboys will try to retain him or will they let him move on? I think he will be priced out of the market. I think he will get a better deal elsewhere, and I think they'll move on at, at center. I think T.J. Bass is a very strong consideration at center there. They feel really? good about him. Hoffman as well. Uh, you saw some guys get some work in there. I think in the salary cap world, you have to make some moves that you would rather not make, but it's just prudent to do so. Just like letting Connor Williams move on. Uh, you know, you, you've seen uh, the Cowboys let their interior offensive linemen move on rather than sign them to a big second contract. I think Biotish will find himself in that same position. Yeah, I was really shocked to see Connor Williams become a center. Of, of all things, I just didn't project him as a center. And he, well, you and know, they tried good. to work him there, and he didn't. It it wasn't. It didn't go well when they used him there in the in the preseason a couple of years ago. Yeah, very interesting. All right, that's going to do it for the Cowboys segment of our podcast. We're going to move over into a little potpourri here. We're going to talk a little, uh, a couple different things. We're going to start with the old NBA All Star Game. David, did you watch any of that uh, on Sunday? No. Yeah, I watched about, I don't know, two minutes of it. And it's just brutal to watch. I just, I can't stand it. it you know, I, I can't say this. Look, to me, 
in my whole life, the only all-star game that really mattered was the baseball all-star game. You yeah. know, and it's, it's easier to play because you're not, first of all, you're not asking guys to really to risk anything, right? It's not like you're probably not going to get injured in an all-star game. It, it has happened before, but, but for the most part, it doesn't happen. Uh, I, I get the whole thing about basketball players feeling like we, we play a, a long season. It's very physical and, and uh, we're trying not to avoid injuries, but come on, 211 to 186. I mean, what a joke. Yeah, I mean, there's got to – you can't set up a competition and then just raise the white flag and say that no one is going to compete. Right. You know, and I've never been – look, the all-star games in every sport are a different animal. I mean, especially the ones in season. Um they're not going to be at the same competitive level, nor should they be. Uh, the players are perfectly right, and the teams are perfectly right not to want their players to extend themselves or put themselves at risk in those games that could impact a, a stretch run for the postseason once they return. Uh, so there's not incentive there for the clubs or the individual to extend themselves. But if you're charging to see the game, if you're broadcasting the game, if it is a signature event or happening in your sport, you can't embarrass the sport that way. You can't, you can't complete, you can't say, look at us, uh, look at all these great players, and then not provide a platform to view that greatness. Um you shouldn't be coming away from the all-star game in any sport angry over yeah, well, that's right. how could they and conduct themselves that way. And, yeah. and that's what happened. And that's where, that's where the NBA is crossed over. It, all of these concerns are legitimate. And I don't expect a, a, a normal competitive game. Um, but but I think everyone has a at least a baseline limited expectation of, well, can't you at least play this game as hard as you would a practice before you play the Indiana Pacers in, in game 67 of the season? Can't you at least give that minimum level of effort while protecting yourself? Are you trying to say this is how you perform in the offseason when you're trying to stay in shape or when you're playing pickup games, uh, you know, to, to kind of keep your feel for the game in the offseason? If, if you can't even, if you can't muster that level of energy and competitive pride, then it really is a slap in the face to everyone who follows the sport. And, and I, hate, I, I hate to make it sound like such old man sort of thing, but I mean, it's, it, it, really, is, it, it really is true. And look, I, I never liked the All-Star Games before, and I found early in the games throughout the years and the ones I covered that um, they just didn't have a good feel for them. You could tell they were different. You know, it was, um, you know, that... The competitive juices weren't there, but late in those games, everyone buckled up and professional pride took over. And I don't remember anyone coming out of those games injured or at risk. And and 
most athletes will tell you, you run a greater chance of risk when you're not being competitive than when you are, which to me kind of just undercuts that argument. But what, what you're doing here is just, it, it comes across even not as, it, it comes across as disinterested and disrespectful is how it comes across. And uh, that's what happens when you walk up to that line on, on not being fully competitive. Uh, and, and I think the NBA has just gone too far in the other direction. And I, I think there are going to be some very hard conversations about it this offseason. You know, you heard the, you know, Joe Dumars and Adam Silver, the commissioner, uh, were both talking going into the game about how last year's All-Star game was a bad look. Uh, you know, you've got to be careful on this. We understand safety over all-out competition, but there is a level defined here. It's about entertainment. And that, to me, that's the other aspect of it. Was there anything entertaining about that game? No. I didn't watch it, but from people who watched it and their reactions, it seems to me the argument was there was nothing entertaining about that game. No. And so here's my remedy for it, David. Just like the Pro Bowl, we got rid of the Pro Bowl, right? For years yeah. I can't flag for football that. football now. Yeah. Yeah, it's flag football. Get rid of the of the of that whole thing. It was stupid to play uh that kind of game. Anyway, because obviously that's real contact there. You're really actually asking people to hit people and do stuff like that. Yeah. Uh so that was a bad idea. And then, and I don't I don't watch the flag football either. I don't care about it. But there are no. people who would. My mind in basketball I've proposed that they just play a horse tournament, and they get and we get uh, twelve guys out here, and they play each other, and you and you put the thing, or I don't know, fourteen guys, however many guys you want to have. It shouldn't take that long to play. You put a limit on how many dunks you can do, uh, because I, I don't want to eliminate Luca right in the first round. Uh, but I, I think that these guys, I'm really intrigued to see what what does Luca have in his bag of tricks, right? I mean, he we saw that one shot he made where he bounced the ball in. And he was talking to uh, Derek Lively, and yeah. uh, obviously he turned around and bounced the ball into the basket, which is just unbelievable that he could do that. And when we know that he he takes these kind of shots in practice all the time and works on, it, and he's probably done it his whole life. I'd like to see what everybody had in their bag of tricks. You know, I I, I do like in the All Star game to watch Damian Lillard take those half court shots. You know, it, that kind of stuff is fun, and in, in a kind of uh, uh, environment where you were putting that together. I, I could like watching something like that. I don't know if the players would want to do it or not. Maybe that maybe not. You know, we know they gave up the the dunking competition essentially. Now it's been relegated to a guy, Mac McClung, who's not even playing in the NBA. And he is yeah. phenomenal to watch. When he took that ball off the top of Shaq's head, jumped over Shaq, you know, to think that a, a man can do that to me is just unbelievable. But yeah. he's not an NBA player. You know, that that's just not even that shouldn't even be allowed. I'm, I'm all for him having, if they want to bring him in at halftime of games and let him do this kind of stuff, I'm all for it. But he's not an NBA player. Anything that creates competition between the athletes, I think fans would enjoy. What, what do players do at the end of practice? We'll put a $100 bill on the court in one spot. Okay, the first guy to hit this shot gets it. Uh, and you feel the going back and forth. You You feel the... Uh, you, you know, the ribbing, the, the, the talk, the getting in your face, the, the, the competition and the juices that get flowing. I agree. Just create competition in these settings that aren't going to threaten their health 
uh, that, that you can do. You give them glimpses and to show what their personalities are really like through competition. And, and you can do that by setting up something. And, and I guarantee you, uh, fans would enjoy those sort of glimpses and, and seeing that more because they know it's a true competition. Um, and not, you know, again, what you've had with like the slam dunk and the three point another is you don't have your top players compete anymore because there's nothing for them to win. All they can do is hurt their reputation or their status if they don't win. So then you have the top dunkers, the top three-point shooters just drop out of the competition. And that's fine. That's reasonable too. But put them all in a setting where they're all competing against each other and they're all or they're all on an equal playing field. In, or, yeah, or David, I like, that. I like the idea of micing these guys up and letting them talk about it. I think that would be big yeah. fun. I think especially in this era now, having them mic'd up and talking to each other and trash-talking each other, you'd have to remind them that it's all going out. Don't wide. give me an all-star game. Give me an all-star reality weekend. Yeah, you know? exactly. That's, that's what we need. All right, let's move over and talk a little bit about the Mavericks now, David. Going into the uh, second half here after the All-Star break, they'll be playing the Suns Thursday night. I'll be out there. Um, so this is a big game for the Mavericks. You know, they're on a, a nice six-game winning streak. Uh, the the two new guys, P.J. Washington and Daniel Gafford, have assimilated themselves very well uh, in, in a very short time. Um, I think Gafford making much more of an impression even than, than Washington has. Uh, I, I really uh, think that that's going to work out well. Derek Lively was able to come back here before the before the break, and uh, and he kind of resumed what he'd been doing before. How how long do you feel that they can kind of carry this kind of thing? And and uh, and, I, and certainly uh, the Suns are, are are somebody they can beat. Uh, you know, I think we've talked about before. What are expectations? How high could they possibly rise? You know, they're ninth uh, right now. Could, could they get as high as fifth, perhaps, maybe? I, I think getting any higher than that in the West might be a little too much to ask. Well, I think, yeah, it's uh, – well, one, they made a more talented acquisition last year before the trade deadline in Kyrie Irving. Uh, neither one of these guys are as talented, but they had the type of games that can fit in and you pick up and you keep going. So as far as giving you success in the stretch run, they're easier pieces to assimilate because they don't change your style of play. They enhance your style of play. So those are, I thought, were outstanding pickups from that perspective. You know, actually, while this team has a better record than it did at the All-Star break last year, I think it's actually seventh in the standings. And last year it was sixth, you know, coming out of the All-Star break. So they, they still need to move up. Uh, look, every team needs to avoid the play-in tournament. Uh, you, you're just putting – you're exposing yourself to a risk that you uh, don't want to take on in that, in that situation. So I, I think, you know, fifth or sixth for where they are, for how the conference sets up, I, I think is, is realistic. But again, you know, they've won six straight, and what, they've picked up like a half a game? You right. know, they, they've kind of kept pace. So it's, uh, but again, it, it's just, that's where, that's where the strength of the West is. And they're right in the middle of the strength of the West as far as competition. And it's going to be tough for them to, uh, to move up much. 
Yeah, and, and you know, I, because I do there are so many it, teams. It's not just you're chasing one or two teams. It's like right. there are five yeah, or six teams in there. There's not much separation on them at all. You no, know? yeah, these teams are all pretty pretty equal. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, I, I do think that uh, the Mavericks are the kind of team that uh, can be dangerous in the playoffs. I, I think that if you get if you get Irving and Luca both playing at a high level, then everybody else is performing their roles the way they're supposed to. I think that'd be a very difficult team to, to to match up against, frankly. Well, you saw it two years ago when the team that had no business making the conference finals did because of Luka Doncic. And, and that's it. You get in any series, Luka is capable of winning a series for you by himself. And now you have Kyrie Irving on the game or two that Luka is not in peak form who can pick up the offensive slack and you shouldn't be able to miss anything. Yeah. A very dangerous team. Yeah. I, I, I like, I, I like the direction this team is going right now. Um, it, you know, it, it's really funny that they have talked and talked and talked about, you know, year after year is putting the right pieces around Luca. And, and it does feel like they have, maybe they have finally done that with these last two uh, acquisitions in the trade. I, I feel like they are not uh, a soft team anymore because of that. Um, and it has allowed them to, it's going to allow them to do some things uh, that they couldn't do before. All right. Before we get out, I want to talk one last thing about the, the college football playoff uh, as we're taping this on Tuesday. Uh, the, uh, the CFP and the president's approved a five plus seven model for this fall in the uh, college football playoff. That means that instead of being a six plus six is what it was going to be, six conference champions plus six at-large teams with the disintegration of the Pac-12 uh, that only rightfully so uh, was diminished to from six to five. So now we have five conference champions plus uh, the seven uh, at-large teams, which is going to be the right thing to do. Now, really, this is just a kind of a one-year deal. Uh, there is some speculation that uh, beyond that, uh, that the SEC and the Big Ten both are considering other possibilities of what they uh, might want to push for. I'm not sure at this point what they can do. I know that there is a lot of thought that somewhere in the future, here in the near future for that matter, uh, that what we can see is just an upper tier of, uh, of superpowers or super teams, whatever you want to call them, super conferences, Two leagues, uh, 20 teams, 25 teams or 25 schools in each, uh, maybe just 50 teams that are kind of above and beyond what everybody else is doing, that they don't have to, to share as many, uh, many as much revenue with everyone else. Uh, I think that's probably all out there in the near future. And I think that's why when, when people were talking about SMU going to the ACC and forfeiting nine years of media rights, I don't really even think it's going to come down to that. I, I don't really think that these conferences, uh, as we know them now, are going to be around uh, in nine, nine years. years. Yeah, yeah. I, I think. I think what the shakeout is not done. Yeah. No, no. Any decision being made right now is probably on a on a large scale, good for five years uh, at, at at most. Uh, you know, they're going to sign some new you know new deals, as, and, and ESPN has already signed a new deal to extend to cover uh, the, the championships. But 
I just feel like that uh, it is evolving too fast. It's like a big stone that's been pushed down a hill and there's no stopping it now. Uh, and the SEC and the Big Ten already kind of run things as it is and they will continue to do so. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how this all pans out uh, for college football. Uh, it'll be interesting this fall to see how the Big 12 holds up without Texas and Oklahoma. Uh, it's two, uh, you know, signature franchises, flagship programs for the the Big 12 and let's see who uh, how it does, first of all, and, and who takes over in the new Big 12, who will be the dominant teams in that. Um, but I got to tell you, it, it takes a lot of the romance out of the league without those teams in them. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it just makes it harder, you know, to people can complain about Texas and Oklahoma all they want to. But when you beat Texas or Oklahoma, then that gives you a leg up. You know, people pay attention to that kind of thing. Uh, and besides the fact they were just good rivals, good traditional rivals to have in a league. And when you subtract those, your league has been diminished. I don't care how many more schools you bring in. The Big 12 is not the same, even with all these schools being added as it was when it had Texas and Oklahoma. It's not the same as it was when it had Texas a and yeah, and, and Nebraska and Missouri and all the rest, you know. Now this is a completely league. different. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's not – it's not the same conference. I mean, the whole composition is different. Uh, the dynamics are different. It This is a conference we have not seen before. It really is. It's not you a know, remnant I, of what the conference was. It's a completely different conference. Yeah, no question. You know, it's just like SMU going to the ACC, you know, uh, as I said, I'm not, you know, defending SMU. Or, but realistically, if you look at it, as the ACC is right now with Florida State still in it and Clemson, and Clemson's not quite what it was a few years ago, uh, that's a better league than the Big 12. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. and, and so it, it, it's just almost as good in basketball as the Big 12 mm-hmm. is, and it's and it's frankly better than football. I don't, you know, I, I think any one of these schools in the Big 12 could have a big year. Oklahoma State could have a big year. Texas Tech might have one. Uh, you know, I, I think really at this point, you know, Kansas State might, uh, at, at this point, those to me seem like the, the schools most likely poised to vault to the top of the Big 12 as it is. Um, you know, perhaps, you know, one of the newcomers, I don't know, that could as well. But when you look at it, what you look at is, is a team that perennially is pretty good. And Clemson's pretty good. Uh, Florida State's pretty good. Those are franchises that you can you can kind of count on. So SMU has at least done that. It's put itself into the conversation with uh, a league that, that really has some oomph to it uh, nationally. Uh, speaking of using words like oomph, I, that was another thing I watched uh, last night, David. Besides watching the front page, you know, a great old newspaper movie, uh, I watched the uh, uh, documentary on Tom Wolf. Uh, it was really good. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. It was really excellent, you know, and, and, uh, uh, in, in talking about, uh, when he wrote the, the Esquire, uh, article about, uh, racing in California. And, uh, I can't even remember the entire title, but it was a stream of consciousness. He wrote, he had run into a writer's block, couldn't write this. Story. He proposed the story, went out to California to talk about all these kids putting together these racing dragsters and how beautiful the cars were and all that kind of stuff. And he just wrote a memo to his editor, uh, in which it was, I don't know, 12,000 words or something like that. And it was just all stream of conscience. He wrote it all in one night. They sent it in. 
they, they interviewed the editor and, and the editor said it was just a masterpiece. He said, I took off the dear Bob or whatever at the top. <laughs> I took off his last line and that was it. They ran it as, as it was. Wow. And that was his first big magazine piece. He would, huh. he had been working for the New York Herald Tribune. He, uh, uh, was on a writer's there was a writer's strike uh and so he needed money and he wrote that piece and it immediately made him famous tom Wolf. wow pretty great all right that's enough we've had a lot of thought we talked about movies we talked about writers famous writers this is we really branched out this week this is this is good none who are on this podcast <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> no kidding no question about that all right, so uh, we'll be back next week, and we'll talk a little bit more about some of this stuff. You know, I'll be back from Las Vegas next week. I'm going uh, with my wife on the Realtors Convention, a boondoggle for me, uh, and I'm, I'm just going along for the ride. Uh, but I'll uh, and well, they have I'll, a Whataburger there now if you want to grab a Whataburger. They got a Whataburger in Las Vegas? On the Strip, yeah. Wow, look at that. Look at that. We're more like Vegas every day. We get this casino <laughs> here. You wouldn't know the difference between Dallas and Las Vegas. Oh, right? you'll know. You'll know. <laughs> okay. All right. Good. All right. That's going to do it then. So from everybody in here to everybody out there, thanks, and we'll see you next time. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.